Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I am your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Hello, welcome. This is Matthew, and I'd like to uh, formally welcome you all to the first episode of this podcast. And today we are going to uh, be talking and we'll really be introducing the first part of a series that we are doing on Sunday mornings in East Memorial Student Ministries, and that is a series on angels, demons, and Satan. And in this podcast today, we are going to begin by talking about angels. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the good guys. And and I say that because we inherently understand from a biblical worldview that not all angels are good guys. We know that Satan is an angel. We know that there are other fallen angels under the power of Satan. And so it's important to make this distinction because often in the church, when Christians speak of angels, they often are referring to the good guys as opposed to the bad guys who are often referred to as demons. So it's important to make that distinction and and to say that we are going to be looking at the good guys today. But before we, we get into our topic today, we have to ask and answer an important question, and that's this. Why is it important to do a biblical study on angels, demons, and Satan? And when we think of that question, really there's there's several answers that, that we can come up with, and, and the first of which is this. The Bible says a lot more about the spiritual realm than many people realize. As an example, if if we just look at the amount of times angels and demons are referenced, just even in the New Testament, angels are referenced at least 179 times in the New Testament, and demons are mentioned at least 63 times in the New Testament. Uh, And of course, uh, Satan is a central figure in both the beginning of the Bible and in the creation narrative. Uh, as well as the very end in Revelation. And and that is not even to speak of all the other times that angels, demons, and Satan appear uh, throughout Scripture. And so when we see how often the spiritual beings that God created are mentioned, uh, we we realize that this is a much bigger part uh, of Scripture. And so to better understand this topic is going to only increase our, our biblical understanding in general. So that's that's a first answer uh, to this question. Uh, number two, uh, according to Scripture, angels, demons, and Satan interact with human beings and God's creation constantly and regularly even to this day. And so by understanding this topic deeper and from a biblical perspective, uh, we not only gain a better understanding of Scripture, but we also gain a better understanding of the world that we live in. Third, and maybe this is is the final answer we'll talk about today, is is or that we'll mention, is that supernaturalism is, just in general, is becoming far more popular in the culture today. Uh, This is true in secular media uh, through uh, popular streaming channels like Netflix, where many of the programs and and movies and shows that that are streamed on uh, popular streaming services like this um, are starting to really highlight and uh, kind of... uh, we could say promote an interest in supernaturalism, uh, especially on the more sinister side. Uh, and even beyond just uh, media, uh, even in our schools, I, I recently 
uh, read a report from California that there was a lawsuit several parents were bringing against a, a, a school district in California because as, as part of uh, cultural exposure, um, they were having students actually uh, perform incantations or prayers to Aztec uh, deities, uh, Aztec gods, and, and mind you, these are deities and gods that, according to the Aztecs, demanded human sacrifice, and and uh, and thousands of people were sacrificed to these deities. And here in our own schools in in California, students are being led into uh, a form of pseudo worship in a way, um, all under the the banner of uh, cultural exposure and and uh, kind of, you know, a cultural um, familiarity. So w- when we consider those things that, that are going on in today's world, I think now it's more important than ever to make sure that our understanding of the spiritual realm, our understanding of angels, demons, and Satan is informed by the Bible and not by secular culture, not by our school teachers, but by what the Word of God says about these spiritual beings, because we know that the Word of God is true. The world, the the secular media, the the school systems, they're going to lie to us. They're going going to tell us things that are not true. So we have to look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say about this spiritual realm that we're going to be discussing. So as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about the good guys today. And probably the best place to start in a topic like this is to identify what the biblical terms are for these angels, especially the good guys, but but even just angels in general. If we kind of go through these terms, then as we go through Scripture, we'll be able to identify when these spiritual beings are being referenced in the Word of God. So, so let's go through for a minute and just look at some of these, these terms. So, of course, the first term that we have is, is even the title of today's topic is, is angel. Angel is, is the most common name and term for these spiritual beings that 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 we utilize in the church. And, and what does this mean? So angels in both the Old and New Testament, the, the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated as angel, they mean messenger. And and by messenger, it can include somebody that's literally delivering a message, but it also can involve kind of like a a envoy or a servant that's being sent out for official business. So it's you know somebody that was being sent by their their boss or their master into the marketplace to to give somebody, you know, money or to uh, deliver official business correspondence. Um, this type of person could be referred to as a messenger in this sense. In fact, the the term for angel, both in the Hebrew and Greek, can be used to refer to human messengers and servants. So this term angel is not unique to these spiritual beings. It can be applied to humans, but granted, uh, in our understanding, even, even in scripture, this term angel is, is most often applied to uh, the spiritual beings that, that we know of as angels. Uh, a second term that we often see in Scripture is spirits. And in this you can find, if, if, you're, if you're taking notes, in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 22, uh, you see a, a scene in this passage where uh, God is... is uh, gathering the angelic assembly around him to to carry out a plan of his and and they're called spirits and and the reason they're called spirits is simply because that's their nature they are spiritual 
beings. They don't have flesh and blood bodies in the same way that you and I have flesh and blood but blood bodies. They they have spiritual bodies. They're spiritual in their nature, in their essence. So at times, such as the passage we just mentioned, uh, angels can be referred to as spirits. Another term we see is heavenly ones or holy ones. This, this can be found in passages like Job 15, verse 15, and then Psalm 89, verses 5 to 7. And uh, that say again, uh, Job fifteen fifteen and Psalm eighty nine, verses five to seven. And in this term, heavenly ones or holy ones really reference their proximity to God. As angels, they have access to to God's throne and God's heavenly sanctuary. And because they are in proximity of God and they are close to God. Um, they are considered holy in that sense. So heavenly ones, holy ones is a third common term that we see. A fourth term that you will see is stars. Uh, angels can be often associated with the celestial bodies that, that God created, your, your stars, your moon, um, sun, etc., well, you're, well you're, where, where you will see this in Scripture is, that, for example, Job 38, verses 5 to 7, the angels there are explicitly uh, called stars. So that is another term. A fifth term is they can actually be called gods with a, a lowercase g, or the, the word in the original Hebrew is Elohim. A great example where angels are referred to as gods is in Psalm 82. If you if you read through that passage, you'll you'll see that. And maybe it's important to say here that the term Elohim in the Old Testament, although it is often a term that applies to the God or or Yahweh, the God that created us and that we worship, the the term in general can refer to any divine or spiritual being. It's not unique to the God of the universe. Yahweh is unique to the God of the universe because that is God's personal covenantal name. That is the Trinity's personal name. But Elohim is just a generic term for for really any divine being, even though it's most often applied to to the God and creator of the universe. But, but just as an example, uh, even in uh, the book of, of Samuel, there's an episode where Samuel, the spirit of Samuel is actually summoned by a necromancer that King Saul hires in order to summon uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And Samuel actually does appear. God permits his spirit to appear. And when Samuel's spirit appears from the underworld at that time, uh, the necromancer, the, the witch of Endor, I, I believe, uh, she's surprised and she's startled. And, and when Saul asks her what she's seeing, she actually says that she sees an Elohim uh, coming up out of the earth. And so that's an example where this term Elohim can even refer to a, a human spirit um, but it can also refer to angels, and most often the term refers to the triune God of Scripture whom we worship. But long story short, angels can at times be referred to as gods with a lowercase g. Another term is they can be called sons of God. We see that uh, reference in passages like Genesis 6-4, Job 1-6, Psalm 82-6. That's Genesis 6-4, Job chapter 1, verse 6, and then Psalm 82, verse 6. And, and here this phrase, sons of God, uh, points to the fact that angels were created by God. They do not have a parentage like you and I do. 
Uh, they do not have a, an angelic father, so to speak. All of the angelic beings were created directly by God and therefore are referred to at times as sons of God. Another term we see for angels is ministers. They can be referred to as ministers or ministering spirits, and we see that in Psalm 104, verse 4. And this will, this will apply to a big function that we'll talk about shortly, but they can be called ministers. Another one that they can be called is host or the host of heaven. You'll see this in uh, the passage we, we mentioned earlier, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19. And there's other passages as well, but, but this term host is a military term, and it, it can be applied to human uh, military units as well, but often it will occur in the phrase host of heaven or the heavenly host, and it's a reference to the angelic army or the angels that are serving as God's spiritual army. Another term is prince or princes. This is a term you see in the book of Daniel especially. If you, if you would look in, in Daniel 10, uh, verses 12 to 13, and we won't read through that right now, but Daniel 10 verses 12 to 13, you will see a reference to these princes, uh, specifically the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. And what you find in the book of Daniel is that these princes are actually angelic beings. Uh, even we see in, in Daniel, Michael, the archangel, who's one of the two angels that is actually named in scripture and he is called the prince uh, or one of the chief princes and considered the prince over Israel and we'll talk more about that as well but but prince or princes uh, is a title that can be used to refer to angels now there's two more terms we'll mention and these two terms we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail and the two terms, these two final terms, is one cherubim. So angels can be referred to as cherubim or, or, uh, or in the singular cherub. And where you'll see this is in Ezekiel 10 in, the, in one of the, the visions that Ezekiel has of, of the throne of God. And the second one that is related is seraphim. Seraphim is a, a, a term applied to angels that you see, for example, in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah's vision of the throne of God, he sees angels, which he refers to as seraphim. So all these terms are, are common terms. I, I might be missing one or two, um, but, but these are the majority of the terms and titles that refer to uh, angels or, or the spiritual beings that, that we're talking about. Uh, and so the next topic, having covered these terms, that, that's important to address is the appearance. What do angels look like? What does scripture describe about these angels? Well, what, what we see is first, we see angels in scripture appearing in human form. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you if you have your Bible and you turn to Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 5, that's Genesis 19, verses 1 to 5, what you see are two angels. And, and here I'll read from verse 1. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he, that is Lot, urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered into his house, and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. 
before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So what's important to, to mention in this passage is that these two angels, and these are the same two angels that appeared to Abraham several several chapters prior, and they, they appeared with the, with the angel of the Lord. And uh, what's, what's interesting about this passage, and even when they appeared to Abraham, is that these angels are referred to as men, and they have human features. They, they have feet that Lot wants them to, to wash. They're able to eat and, and share a meal with Lot. And, and the people of Sodom, when they saw these two men, they have no concept that these men are angels. They believe that they're men, that they're just ordinary human beings like, like you and I. And, and so what's important here is that angels, when they appear to human beings can often in scripture appear as ordinary human beings. And, and here's a great example of this in the New Testament. If you'll look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, that's Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. This is a very intriguing passage, and here's, here's what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. So here, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there have been Christians, there have been believers who have shown hospitality to strangers, and these strangers would have just seemed like ordinary human beings, ordinary people, but in actuality, they were angels, and the Christians that were showing hospitality to these strangers had no idea that they, angel, that they were angels. They just assumed that they were ordinary people. So these two passages together, and there are several more, is, is biblical proof that angels can and do appear in human form that is indistinguishable from another human being. Now, although they appear in human form, it is safe to say, based on Scripture, that this is not their actual form. That if we were to see them in their spiritual nature and form, uh, they would appear much, much different than ordinary human beings. And, and there's two examples that we're going to look at. And the first of which we've, we've just mentioned uh, not too long ago are the seraphim. The seraphim, as I mentioned, they're, they're the angels that are seen in Isaiah's vision. So if you'll look in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 specifically, what we see is, is Isaiah describing the appearance of these seraphim. And here's what Isaiah says. Seraphim stood above him, that is God, who's on the throne, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So here, this, this seraphim, or these seraphim, because there's several of them that are in Isaiah's vision, they are winged creatures. And, and, and here's what's interesting about this. This isn't super clear in Isaiah's vision because, well, after all, their faces are covered. So even Isaiah seems to not get a, a full view of what these angels look like. But if you actually look at the, the word behind seraphim, the, the root word, and you trace this in, in scripture, what you find is this word is most likely, and, and many scholars will argue this, that this word is most likely a reference to serpents. In fact, in the book of Numbers, when you have the episode of the fiery serpents that God sends upon the people of Israel as a punishment and as a plague, these fiery serpents are referred to in the same terminology as seraphim. And based on studies that scholars have done, they have linked this term with even 
um, other cultures and their depiction of these winged flying serpents or kind of like in a way dragons. And in fact, I'll, I'll try to attach some of the media that, that we've looked at in the student ministry, but there's a few images of these winged and flying serpents. And they were believed to be protectors and guardians of the throne. Uh, so for example, in ancient Egypt, where, where, which is um, where one of the images is from, uh, these these seraphim or these these serpents um, would have been viewed as the king's protector, the protector of Pharaoh. And if anybody were to threaten the Pharaoh, then these these flying serpents would essentially breathe out fire and and consume um, Pharaoh's adversaries. So, Looking at those cultures, looking at how this term is used in, in scripture, there's a strong, or maybe I could say it would be reasonable to view these seraphim as serpentine-like creatures, where they, they have a serpentine um, quality to them. Um, but also, as Isaiah is mentioning, they're, they're, they have wings as well that they that they disguise themselves in. Uh, the second um, category of appearance that we can talk about is related to another category of angels that we mentioned, and that is the cherubim. Uh, the cherubim, as I talked about, they're, they're seen by Ezekiel in his visions of God's throne. And I have one passage that we can read, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 1. So if you'll go to Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, what we find here is Ezekiel's depiction of these cherubim. And, and here's what he says, starting in verse 5. He says, within it, and that is within this throne vision, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof and they gleamed like burnished bronze. So they had this kind of like fiery appearance. Then in verse 8, under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for their faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man all four had the face of a lion on the right and on the face of a and the face of a bull on the left and all four had the face of an eagle such were their faces their wings were spread out above each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies so here these cherubim they're they're described in in slightly different terms instead of six wings they're described as having four wings and, and Ezekiel, unlike Isaiah, he actually sees the faces of these angelic beings, and, and it's pretty unique. Now, there's, there's several ways to potentially interpret um, what the, these angels would have looked like. Now, of course, because we're going off of verbal description, it's, it's impossible to, to get an exact perfect representation, you know, it would be impossible to to see exactly what Isaiah is describing, but there's been different artistic renderings and interpretations of this, and you'll see two of those in in the media that I that I will attempt to attach to this podcast. But uh, uh, one view has you literally have four distinct faces that kind of go all around the head of these angels. And each direction the angel goes, that face is looking towards that direction. The head does not turn. Um, another interpretation that you'll see is where the, the head of the angel is, is like ours in the sense they have one face, but the face has the feature of, of all four of these, um, these forms. So if, if you were looking, for example, straight at the, at the angel it would maybe have a more human resemblance, but then on one side, it would be more of a, a, a lion. On the other side, a, a, a 
bowl. And then maybe on the back, they would have kind of a of an eagle-like or, or feathery um, type of appearance. So that that's another possible interpretation. Um, but these cherubim, uh, they were depicted uh, in the Ark of the Covenant is one, where they were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then in Solomon's temple, um, specifically, there were two massive uh, sculptures, so to speak, or, 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 yeah, I mean, basically sculptures, gold-covered sculptures of these cherubim that were in the, the innermost part of the temple, or what was called the Holy of Holies. And what's really interesting, I'll try to connect a video of a model of Solomon's temple, which, which depicts these, these two cherubim that stand over the Ark of the Covenant, is that these cherubim in Solomon's temple stood at around 17 feet tall. And so if these statues of the cherubim in Solomon's temple are meant to be life-size representation of these cherubim, and it's it's very likely that that is the case, then in their original form, in their true form, the, these cherubim are, are fairly massive. Uh, they'd be, ap- quite frankly, terrifying, you know, they, with this, you know, there's lightning that surrounds them, They're, they have this burnished bronze kind of fire-like appearance, they're up to 17, maybe 20 feet tall, they have massive wings with a massive wingspan um and then just this totally unique kind of half human half animal um composition and appearance and in fact when you consider the seraphim and the cherubim in their original form in their full form not in their disguised form where they're disguising themselves as as human but in their original form what is consistent across all these descriptions of the seraphim and the cherubim is that their appearance is a mixture of human and animal features, even though overall they have a humanoid uh, body and appearance. They they at least share well. At least the cherubim have have a human form. Um, they all have animal like features. So it's 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 pretty interesting, and and of course, me describing it is one thing. Actually, seeing um, some of the artistic renderings of these creatures um, even puts it into another perspective. But long story short, the these angels appear as incredible and, and terrifying creatures, and so it's no wonder when sometimes prophets will will see these angels. Uh, they will fall down on their face in, in fear, and they'll have to be kind of comforted that hey, you don't need to, you don't need to fear me. Um, so they are terrifying, uh, very unique uh, creatures. So we just talked through the appearance of angels. We've we've gone through the the terms often used to describe angels. We've now gone through the appearance of angels. Now let us talk about the roles of angels the roles. Okay. So while we're still on, while cherubim and seraphim are fresh in our mind, let's talk about these guys. And and there's some debate, there's some scholarly debate of whether cherubim and seraphim are two different classes of angels, whether they are the the same general class of angel. Uh, it, it's hard to know, quite frankly, from scripture. Um, uh, definitively, whether the cherubim and the seraphim are two separate, you could say, species of angels that that you know may not be a, a correct term, but it, it's possible. But what we can say about the cherubim and the seraphim is that they appear to have the same general function. And what is their function? What is their role? Well, both the cherubim and the seraphim are associated with the presence and the throne of God. They show up wherever the throne of God is. And specifically, they are depicted as guardians of God's of God's presence, his throne, and his sanctuary. 
Um, here's a, a great example of this in Genesis 3, if you, if you have your Bibles, Genesis 3, verse 24. And, and here's what Scripture says. It says, so he, that's God, drove the man out. And of course, it's speaking of the Garden of Eden. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So these cherubim are, are depicted as guardians. In fact, in the uh, tabernacle and, and original temple, Solomon's temple, uh, the cherubim were carved all over the place in, in the temple, and specifically on the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, there were cherubim that were inlaid into this this fabric curtain kind of symbolizing their guardian role, that they were going to guard the presence and the access to the throne of God. Uh, also associated with, with their um, presence at God's throne is the cherubim and seraphim are depicted as uh, praising and giving glory to God. You see this in Isaiah 6 when the seraphim are declaring holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. Um, you see this also in Revelation 4 when, when John is seeing a vision of God's throne and seeing the, the, uh, the angelic creatures around it. Um, these angels, we can think of it like this, they're depicted as God's um, you know, hype people. They're 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 God God's uh, hype men in a way. You know, they're they're the ones that are kind of going before the entourage and and declaring, you know, welcome. You know, he, here's the Lord. Um, you know, holy is God. This is this is what they seem to be uh, a vital function that they have to announce uh, the presence of God, to announce His glory, to give praise to Him, uh, to announce His holiness. That is another big function. So that is the cherubim and the seraphim uh, specifically. But let us just turn to, to angels in general. And what we find is another vital role that, that angels seem to fulfill is that they are helpers in the administration of God's judgments and decrees. If you, you see in passages like 1 Kings 22, verses 19 to 22, even uh, several places in Revelation, like Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, angels are the administrators of God's heavenly rule. When God makes a decree, when God sets a plan, he often sends his angels to actually carry out the plan. So in Revelation, for example, when God is, is initiating his judgment upon the world through all of the various uh, trumpets and bull judgments, um, it is angels that are actually pulling the trigger, so to speak. They're the ones that are actually taking the trumpets or the bulls and administering these judgments. So they are viewed as God's administrators and uh, agents of, of his divine rule. Another, a third vital function of the angels is they are ministers to God's people. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you will look with me for a minute at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, we see an example of this. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that angels are ministering spirits. And, and we did talk about the, the term ministers um, being applied to angels. The author of Hebrews is saying that one of their jobs, one of their roles is to serve and help the believers, those that will inherit salvation. And, and we see that uh, alluded to in Scripture 
um, there's a great example of angels helping God's people in the book of Acts, uh, specifically when Peter was kept in prison. You might remember this. This is in Acts chapter 12, verses, for example, 5 to 10. Um, but we don't have to read through that. What, what's happening is Peter's in prison. He, he was arrested by Herod, and the next day he was going to be brought forward. And during that night, while the guards are all in front of the door, they're watching over the prison, suddenly an angel of the Lord appears. And here I'll just read from, from verse 7 here in chapter 12. He says, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And then his chains fell off his hands. And, and the angel said to him, Gird yourself and, and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to them, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city which opened for them by itself, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So here we see a very, very clear example where an angel is being sent as a ministering spirit to Peter and essentially helping Peter escape from prison. It wasn't Peter's time. Um, God did not want Peter, did not intend for Peter to, to suffer um, death or martyrdom or any kind of uh, major consequence at that point in Peter's life. And so he sends this angel to essentially break him out of jail. Um, so that's a great example. In fact, I actually have a very, very fascinating uh, modern day story of this. Um, this is third hand, mind you. Okay, I, I, I was told this story by one of my seminary professors and uh, this seminary professor, he uh, was at a funeral of another, uh, well, it was a, a funeral of a pastor's daughter. And this pastor um, was part of his uh, church association, and um, he knew this pastor well, and, and he went to, to the funeral um, in support of this pastor, his, his friend, and he's talking to the pastor, and and. Please forgive me if I if I miss any of the details. It's it's been a little while since I've heard the story, but I'll do my best to to tell you the story as I heard it. Well, my seminary professor was having a conversation with this pastor, and the pastor comes to him and he says, "Hey, you know, I'm really really struggling with something, and you know, something that happened at the accident, and um, I need you to to kind of help me." understand this and um you know he says i'm 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 a pastor i'm i'm serious you know i i'm not all into you know the supernatural so you have to help me understand this so here here's the story here's what happened is this pastor was with uh his family and they were with another family as well and they were driving to some kind of function or event and they were uh carpooling in in a two-car caravan i believe and the pastor and a few others were in the second vehicle in the back, and his daughter was was in the front vehicle along with a few of her friends. And so they were driving. It was at nighttime, and and the uh, as they're driving, the front vehicle um, where the the pastor's daughter was located, it came out onto a road and was was struck by another vehicle at a at a pretty high rate of speed. And so the pastor driving the second vehicle, they drive up and, and and they get out. And he goes up and he sees that his daughter um, was was instantly uh, killed in the in the car accident. And uh, as he's in shock uh, witnessing this, um, God only knows. Uh, God can only imagine the the grief that that would that he would be experiencing that moment and the shock as well well he also noticed that his, his daughter's friend uh was injured and was actually choking on uh the seatbelt and so in the midst of of his grief and shock he was attempting to to free his daughter's friend and, and to get the seatbelt 
off of her neck. And he was having a really hard time uh, doing this. And so while he's trying to free this young woman, um, this young lady, he told my professor that all of a sudden he feels a, a hand on his back and there is a man that is there. And it's very, very peculiar because if I remember the, the story correctly, the man was shirtless, uh, wearing, I believe, a pair of blue jeans and had kind of long, longish hair. And I remember hearing the story and, and the, the image that came into my mind, I know this might be comical, but it was almost like it was being described as like Fabio or something like that. You know, this kind of this jean wearing shirtless, long hair man uh, was standing next to him. And if I remember correctly, the, the, this man uh, knew the pastor's name and also knew his daughter's name and said to him, don't worry, your daughter is with the father right now. And then he pulls out a large kind of hunting knife and reaches over and cuts the seatbelt from his daughter's friend's uh, neck. So he cuts this, 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 this mysterious man, cuts the seatbelt, and frees the, the young woman, and then turns around, walks into the forest that was near them and disappears. And that was that was the last time this pastor saw that that man. And and he's talking to my professor at this funeral. And he's like, you know, I'm a serious guy. I, I don't, you know, I I, I th this isn't easy for me, but but tell me, you know, what did I experience? And as we were talking in class about this with the professor, I mean, it, it, it seemed pretty obvious. I mean, the fact that this this man knew his name, knew his daughter's name, made the comment that his daughter was in the presence of of the father and was with the father, and then, you know, freed this other young woman and then just disappears would seem to be uh, maybe even a, a modern day real life example uh, of an angel who is appearing as man you wouldn't necessarily be able to to tell and, and is being sent to to be a ministering spirit and to help this pastor in a really traumatic and, and devastating situation and to save the life of 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 this other young woman now again this is a third hand story I, I i you know maybe have gotten some details wrong there's no way to confirm that this this mysterious man was in fact an angel but my professor is a serious guy this other pastor is a serious guy and you know this is the story that that was shared and and um it, it's intriguing I'll, I'll just leave it at that it's it's very very intriguing, and very possibly a modern-day example. And that's not the only example. If you um, hear, I, I know I've, I've heard numerous accounts of veterans of wars or people that have survived natural disasters, and not that they would describe, um, you know, the situations in the same terms that 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 we would as Bible-believing Christians, but they, in some of these cases, you'll actually hear people talk about, you know, they were looking for an exit, you know, in this natural disaster situation, and they just felt almost like a hand kind of push them in a particular direction, or you'll hear of stories of people that are trying to lift off, um, you know, some kind of heavy object or even a car off of a, of a victim and they'll feel like, you know, just something kind of lifts the, the object up in, in, a, in a, a way that, that is not explainable. Um, it's almost like superhuman strength, you know, so you'll hear stories like this. Again, th there's no way to confirm that, that these involve actual angels, but based on what we see of angels in scripture and specifically as their role as ministering spirits and how they can at times disguise themselves in, in, in ordinary human form. It is very possible that 
angels show up in situations like this, especially natural disasters, traumatic situations, um, more often than we would maybe assume or even think of. So that is the the third role that we've talked about, minister to ministering spirits to God's people. Uh, here's a fourth role, and that is that angels are described as serving the role of delivering messages from God or delivering interpretations of prophetic visions. Um, an angel that seems to uniquely fulfill this role is the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel is the second angel that is named in Scripture. If you remember, we mentioned that Michael is the is the first angel that's actually named. Well, Gabriel is the second. And, and as far as I know in my search of Scripture, these are the only two angels that are actually named by name. This is their personal names. And Gabriel specifically seems to serve this unique role as God's personal message deliverer and interpreter. Um, you'll see Gabriel show up in Daniel again, Daniel chapters 8, chapters 9. You'll see Gabriel in Luke 1 in the, um, in the nativity scenes where, where uh, Gabriel is appearing to John the Baptist's father. And then also Mary, the mother of Jesus, that Gabriel is appearing to these people to deliver the good news or, or the message that God wants, wants them to receive. Gabriel is an angel that seems to fulfill this role uniquely. Um, another role, and this is related to the ministering spirits, but uh, angels do appear to, to function as guardians. Um, not just guardians of God's throne and sanctuary, but also guardians over individuals and groups of people, even including entire nations. Uh, here's a few individual examples. Well, we've already talked about Peter being rescued from prison, but uh, another real clear example is in the book of Daniel. And in two cases, both when Daniel's three friends are thrown into the fiery furnace, and then when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, in both of those cases, there is an angel that appears and delivers Daniel or his three friends. Um, here's an example from Daniel 6. Daniel speaks to the king. He says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, in, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. So what Daniel is saying is that it was an angel that actually protected him from the lions. It wasn't that the lions in and of themselves had a special, you know, uh, affinity for Daniel and didn't want to eat him. No, an angel was sent by God to physically restrain the lions from attacking Daniel. Or in the case of his three friends, an angel physically protected his three friends from burning in the burning furnace. So that's an in, those are that's those are some individual examples on the national example we also see in Daniel um, and this goes back to our term prince we see that Michael who's referred to as the great prince or one of the chief princes he is depicted as standing guard over the sons of Israel. Uh, look with me for a minute at Daniel 12, verse 1. This is Daniel 12, verse 1. And here, Daniel writes, he says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Well, this is, of course, you know, this is um, Daniel's the one that's receiving this message. And here, Michael is being referred to as this great prince who stands guard over the people of Israel. So we see this guardian role of both individuals and even entire nations. All right, so final role and function that we will talk about is angels appear to serve as observers of human affairs. In fact, 
in the book of Daniel and other literature of uh, Jewish literature of the time of, of Jesus, uh, around the time of Jesus Christ, non, non-scripture literature, but, but um, Jewish religious literature, uh, angels can be referred to at times as watchers. Um, that is, they're explicitly referred to that in, in Daniel, but that seems to allude to, to this function where they are observers of, of human affairs. Um, some explicit examples of this function can be found in um, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. For example, we have Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul is speaking about his ministry as, as an apostle to the Gentiles and 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 part of the purpose of that. And, and here's what he says in verse 10. He says, referring to this ministry, he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. In other words, what he's saying is that part of the purpose of his ministry to the Gentiles and in the gospel being going to the Gentiles is that it is exposing and revealing the wisdom of God through the church to the angels. In other words, the angels, as they're observing what is taking place in the church, they are learning about God and his nature. And that's what seemed, that is, that seems to be the reason they do observe human affairs. It is to learn about God and his nature. And if you think about this, this makes sense because although angels are spiritual beings, although they they can dwell in the presence of God, they have access to his throne, they're still created beings. And so if you think about that, that angels, although it seems that they were created before human beings, they were only created maybe a few days before Adam and Eve were, were created. So angels as created beings, although they're extremely powerful, although they're spiritual, although they see God face to face, when they were created, they knew as much about God as Adam and Eve. They still had to learn about God, about his nature. And if you think about this as as an example, think about a young child, okay, that's born into a family. A a two-year-old, a three-year-old child, they, they know who their mom and dad are, they know, you know, enough about their dad to know, or their mom as well, that they're the boss, that they set the rules, that they're their authority figure in life, but but they don't really know their parents. They don't know their their parents' history. They don't know the unique personality of their parents. It's not like they could they could explain at three years old, like, you know, oh yeah, this is, you know my dad is different than your dad in this way. Like they, they don't have that concept, right? They, they have to grow. They have to, they have to learn who their parents are over time. Well, it's the same thing with, with all created beings, both humans and angels. And angels, like humans, have to learn about God and his nature. And they, they do this. They learn about God partially through observing how God interacts with human beings and his creation. One more example biblically that we'll talk about before we conclude this this lesson today is we see this really clearly in the beginning of Job. So in Job chapter 1 and 2, and I'll just give a brief summary of this, what, what happens in Job 1 and 2 is that God is depicted as standing in the assembly or in the gathering of his angels. And Satan is described as coming into this gathering with God and his angels. And God asks, you know, what Satan has been up to. And and Satan, God kind of prompts this whole issue with Job by, by saying to Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And and he tells Satan that, you know, Job is the most righteous, faithful man on earth. Now, Satan 
he takes this opportunity to challenge God. And he essentially implies, he, he says, well, I mean, okay, you know, yeah, Job is faithful, but is it not for nothing? I mean, look at how much you've blessed him, God. Look at all the things that you've done for him. Of course he trusts in you and believes in you. And what Satan is doing is he's essentially saying that God is buying Job's faith and that God's judgment of Job's faith and his estimation of the sincerity of Job's faith is wrong. So Satan, in front of all of the angels, is calling out God. He's putting his reputation and his character on the line. So, of course, God responds. And what God does is he permits Satan to take away all of those blessings that Satan claims is the basis of his faith. And, of course, when he does, he takes away his family, takes away his wealth and his possessions. You know, that's not good enough. That doesn't destroy Job's faith. So later on, Satan says, well, you know, you haven't let me inflict any kind of harm upon Job. You know, let me uh, inflict sickness upon him, and then we'll see how strong his faith is. So God says, okay, you know, you can inflict Job, um, but you can't kill him. And so Satan goes and inflicts illness upon Job. And so now here's Job with, he's lost everything, and now he himself is is suffering from uh, physical sickness and, and suffering. And what we see in the book of Job is this saga play out. And what we see is that, you know, Job is not perfect, and in the, in the rest of Job definitely reveals that, that his understanding of God is not perfect. But Job never loses his faith. He never curses God and forsakes God. Yes, Job, by the end of the book, needs needs to to eat a little bit of, uh, of humble pie, so to speak, but, but he never forsakes God. He never abandons God, and as a result, even though this isn't stated explicitly, the sincerity of Job's faith and God's judgment of Job is vindicated among the angelic host, and Satan is exposed as being foolish in that scenario. And so what we see in Job is a great example of how certain things that God permits to happen in the affairs of men, certain things that God does among men, is not necessarily even about men, or even primarily about men. Not not that there's not a purpose for the men, not that Job didn't have something to learn through his suffering, but what we see in Job and what's implied in other places in Scripture is that God is working among men for the sake of the angels, that he is working so that through what he is doing among men, what he is doing through men, the angels may learn who God is, and they may learn his character, and his glory, and his majesty, and his wisdom. Now, why, why is this important, okay? What is, what is a, an application that we can take away from this? And maybe we'll conclude with this. Well, here's why this is important, because what we, what we see and what we have to realize is that there are times when something that is going on in our life, specifically, and I'm thinking of the trials that we encounter in life, there are times when we may feel like there is no purpose for those trials. We may feel alone, we may feel abandoned, and we may question why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this suffering? And what we see with Job is that there may be times that we are going through suffering because God is using 
our suffering and is using the sincerity of our faith and the results that suffering produces in order to instruct his holy angels. The thing about Job is that Job was never told about, and many people don't understand, like many people don't, don't realize this, but Job was never given insight into the entire scene of Job 1 and 2. Job, throughout the, the, the epistle, is struggling over the why to his suffering. And even when God shows up at the end of Job and humbles Job, he still does not tell Job, well, you see, Job, the reason this all happened to you is because Satan called me out and impugned my character in front of all of my angels and implied in front of all my angels that I don't know how to make a correct judgment and that I don't know left from right. And you see, Job, you had to serve as an example and a demonstration of my wisdom and my glory. He didn't tell Job that. He didn't give him that insight. And yet we, as the biblical reader, we are given that insight. We are shown the, the interaction between God and his angels and Satan and why Job went through the suffering that he did. And so how do we apply that to our life? Well, there may be times, there are going to be times when we're going to go through suffering and God may not tell us why. We may not know why, but there are times when the reason is because God desires to instruct his holy angels about himself through us. And so that is a final and important function and role of the angels to observe human affairs. Well, all right, folks, it's been a pleasure to, to talk about angels and specifically the good guys in this first part. Next week, we will, well, next uh, episode, we will um, dive into the bad guys who are often referred to as demons, but as we'll see, it is far more complex than we think. Until next time, uh, I pray that you have a blessed day, and Lord willing, we will see you again. Take care. Thank you.